Well, welcome to all of you as new members, and Scott, thank you for that prayer. Today we're going to look at Esther chapter 8. Now recently, my wife and I were watching an episode of an old police show in which the main characters have gathered their evidence and followed their leads and then captured and arrested their suspect just as we expected them to do because it's just what they always do in the previous episodes. But then, in the final scene of this episode, we learn that they've been set up. The real criminal had escaped and had kind of threatened to return at some future time for payback, which means the crime had not actually been solved and therefore the resolution we were anticipating was not coming at least not yet. There was still going to be more to the story. I feel a little bit of that same sense of delayed satisfaction as we move from Esther chapter seven into chapter eight. Back in chapter seven, Haman was exposed and executed for uh, his crime. And as we fully expect the story, and we fully expect the storyline to begin to resolve at that point. After all, the enemy of the Jews has been eliminated, right? But as we take our first steps into chapter 8, we discover that the resolution we were anticipating is not coming. At least, not yet. There's still more to the story. Haman, the enemy of the Jews, may be dead and his genocidal plans may have been exposed, but, but the decree he issued was still in effect, which means Esther's people, the Jews, are still under the threat of death. You might remember from chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, that Haman's decree called for every Jew in the Persian Empire to be killed, destroyed, and annihilated, young and old, women and children. And this was to be done without hesitation and without mercy on the 13th day of the 12th month. Haman had written this law, if you remember, in the king's name and sealed it with the king's signet ring, making it irrevocable. It could not be repealed. And as a result, when the king found out, he had the power to punish Haman for what was essentially a crime against the crown. And he did, hanging Haman on the very gallows that Haman had built to execute Mordecai. But the king could not rescind or veto the law itself. Once sealed with the king's signet ring, it was done and could not be undone. So everyone in the king's presence that day was asking the same question. How do we change the unchangeable? And the only strategy available was to neutralize the law, to somehow change the status quo so that when Haman's decree went into effect or was carried out, its actual threat would either be significantly limited or removed altogether. 
If Esther's people were going to be spared from annihilation as the queen had requested, a solution would have to be found within those parameters. And in the 17 verses that we're going to look at today, the author of Esther describes kind of a five-stage process in which Esther, Mordecai, and King Xerxes attempt to do exactly that. So let's take a closer look. Stage one occurs in verses one and two as Mordecai is promoted into Haman's position. Mordecai is promoted into Haman's position. Let's look at verse one. It says, that same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king for Esther had told how he was related to her. So chapter one, or chapter eight begins that on the same day that Haman was executed, the king gave to Esther the entire estate of Haman. Now, that seems strange to us when we hear that, because in our culture, a person's estate is always passed along to the next of kin. It, it travels along in the family. But under Persian law, the property of a condemned criminal was forfeited to the crown. So King Xerxes confiscated the estate, but instead of keeping it for himself, he gave the entire estate to Esther. And this was certainly a generous act towards his queen because Haman's estate was a considerable fortune but I also have to wonder in the back of my mind if it may have been the king's way of atoning for the role he had played in Haman's decree against her people. I mean, he had, after all, given his signet ring to Haman without doing his due diligence. So in some ways, there's a part of me that feels like maybe the king was trying to make up a little bit. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22, uh, it says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his grandchildren, but the sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. And in this in first verse of chapter eight, we are seeing Solomon's wisdom carried out right here in front of us. When Esther received Haman's estate, she was given complete control and authority over his properties, his possessions, his money, his slaves, and even his family even his family. Considering that Haman is now dead and no longer poses any threat, Esther reveals to the king that she is related to Mordecai. They are cousins, but Mordecai had raised her like a daughter. Upon hearing this news, the king invited Mordecai into his presence. The text doesn't say this, but I think the king immediately realized that the man who had saved him from assassination, well, they're actually related now by marriage, Mordecai's family. So Mordecai was brought immediately in to see the king. When Mordecai arrived in verse two, it says the king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and he presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. So being given the signet ring, Mordecai is now vested with all of the power and authority previously wielded 
by Haman, including the authority to issue decrees in the name of the king. And being appointed over the estate of Haman by Esther means that Mordecai now has complete control and authority over Haman's wealth and his family. Friends, what happens here in verse 2 simply reinforces an important principle that we learned last week. I'll remind you what it was. A man reaps what he sows. A man reaps what he sows. Remember last week, we saw that Haman had sowed rage and revenge against Mordecai, and Haman had reaped rage and revenge from the king. We saw how Haman had sowed seeds when he plotted the execution of Mordecai. And he had reaped uh, that harvest when he himself was, was executed on the very gallows he intended for Mordecai. And this week we're reminded of the same lesson again. Just as Haman had planned to plunder the Jewish people after they were exterminated, so now He has been plundered after his execution and his entire estate has been turned over to Mordecai the Jew. This is just a reminder for us, friends. We would be very wise to be careful about how we live. For a man reaps what he sows. Let me share one more thought with you about how this verse can apply to our lives today. And I'll say it like this. Mordecai's promotion is not a promise to every Christian. Mordecai's promotion is not a promise to every Christian. Mordecai's promotion into a position of wealth and power does not mean that God promises this outcome for every believer. Faithful Christians are not always going to be promoted and given increased responsibility and authority. Sometimes, he or she is going to get fired when they, take a, when they make a stand for Christ. A brief review of Hebrews 11 reminds us that faithfulness to God in this life will often lead to hardship and adversity and persecution and sometimes death. Sometimes, sometimes, The rewards for our faithfulness will not be given to us until we are present with the Lord. Mordecai's promotion is simply meant to remind us that God is still in control of our circumstances and God will be the one who writes the last chapter of our life. That's what the promotion is supposed to remind us of. Now, due to his promotion, Esther and Mordecai now hold the second and third highest positions in the empire. The Jewish people have never had better political support or representation before the king than they have right at this moment. But with Haman's edict still in play, the threat of death still looms over the Jews like a dark cloud. Stage two uh, begins in verses three through six. And in this second stage, Esther pleads for her people. Esther pleads for her people. Look at verses three through six with me. It says, Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. 
She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and if he thinks it's the right thing to do and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? And again, in these verses, we see the tenderness of Esther's heart for her people. We see her love and her compassion for them. Being given Haman's estate did not, indeed it could not, distract her or deter her from seeking the salvation of her people. We can sense her urgency, not only in her words, but we see it in her actions as she stood before the king. Look again at verse 3. It says she pleaded with the king, falling down at his feet, weeping and begging him to put an end to Haman's evil plan. Do you see how it gripped her heart? This wasn't just cerebral for her. This was coming out of her heart. Haman may be dead, Esther said, but his evil lives on in the law he has issued. Now in verse four, the king extends to Esther the gold scepter, inviting her to stand to her feet, to draw near to him, and to make her petition with him face to face. And with that encouragement, Esther stands up and petitions the king for a reprieve for her people. And with great humility, she asks for the king's favor. She shows deference to his authority. And then with great passion, she pleads with the king to overrule the dispatches that Haman devised. Please undo what Haman has done. For how can I bear to watch disaster and destruction fall on my people? And as Esther pleads with the king of Persia for her people to be spared from the curse of death, I think there's a challenge in there for you and I to consider as well. And I'll say it to you this way. Are we coming to the king of heaven and pleading for people around us who are still under the curse of death? Are we coming to the king of heaven and pleading for people around us who are still under the curse of death? Are there specific friends or family or coworkers for whom we are begging God with tears that he would spare their lives from certain and eternal death? Not only did this passage challenge me this week to create a list of specific names that now sits on my desk, but it also challenged me to ratchet up a notch or two the intensity of my prayers for them. You know, apart from faith in Christ Jesus, people are under the curse of death. They are facing a coming judgment and separation from God for all eternity. But through his death on the cross, 
And because of his resurrection from the grave, Jesus has provided a way for men and women to receive forgiveness from sin and to be reconciled to his father. The way to receive it is not by trying to work really hard to earn it. The way to receive it is to receive it as a gift through repentance and faith in Jesus. And once our eyes have been opened to the grace of God, then our hearts and our prayers should turn towards those who are, who are still yet to be saved. Just as Esther, now being saved from death herself, turns her heart to those who are still under the threat of death from Haman's edict. Jerry Bridges was, the long, was a longtime staff member and famous author. He was a staff member of the Navigators. He passed away about five years ago. But he wrote this in one of his books called The Gospel for Real Life. He said, God intends that everyone who has embraced the gospel become a part of the great enterprise of spreading the gospel. What our particular part is in this great enterprise uh, may vary from person to person, but all of us should be involved. What part we play may vary, but all of us should be involved. And so I wonder if you would consider taking on the same challenge as I did this week. Wonder if you would go before the Lord and consider with the Holy Spirit's help, forming a list of two or three specific people that you would begin to pray for by name, pleading with God for their salvation, and then ask the Holy Spirit to ratchet up in your heart that sense of urgency for their salvation. I'm praying that God will do that in every single one of us. All right, let's look at stage three. In this third stage, the king proposes a second decree. The king proposes a second decree. Look at verse 7. It says, King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther and have hanged him on the gallows. Pause there for a moment. The king responds to Esther's position in verse 7 by affirming that she has found favor with him and pleased him. And this is confirmed by the execution of Haman and the transfer of his estate over to Esther. But the king realizes this is not the gift Esther wanted. She wants the king to veto Haman's decree, rendering it null and void. The obstacle that Esther and Mordecai faced was that the laws of the Medes and Persians were unalterable. And the king could not cancel or change them no matter how much he wanted to or even needed to. Now, this concept is foreign to us. Again, we live in a democracy with a legislative process that allows decisions to be reversed and laws to be revoked. We have a Supreme Court that has the authority to declare laws to be unconstitutional. But that's not how it worked in Persia. You know, for all his bravado and for all his promises to Esther to give her up to half his kingdom, King Xerxes could not keep his promise and do what Esther was asking him to do. But that does not mean they were out of options. 
Xerxes had learned a thing or two about politics in his 12 years as king over Persia, and his hands were not completely tied just yet. Look at verse 8. He says, now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. See, since Haman's original decree could not be changed or rescinded, the king suggested they try a different approach. They could issue a new decree that would counteract the threat of the first one, making the first law more difficult, if not impossible, to carry out. And this would essentially neutralize Haman's decree. So Mordecai, having been promoted by the king, now had the authority to write this new edict, and he had the king's signet ring, meaning he could write it in the king's name and send it out as the king's command. And like the first, this new decree could not be revoked. And further, just kind of as a side note, writing a decree like this, a decree that favored the Jewish people, because Haman certainly didn't favor the Jewish people, but if Mordecai wrote a new decree that favored the Jewish people, it would let everyone in the empire know that the king's apparent opposition to the Jews has changed. And it would declare the king now wants the people of his empire to change their attitudes towards the Jews. And suddenly, a glimmer of hope begins to shine in Esther's and Mordecai's hearts as the next stage in the process begins. In stage four, Mordecai's new edict is written and sent throughout the empire. Mordecai's new edict is written and sent throughout the empire. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, At once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote, all, they wrote out all of Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, horses, especially bread for the king. So the royal secretaries were summoned immediately on the 23rd day of the third month. This was just 70 days after Haman had issued his decree. And just as the secretaries had done for Haman, so now they're going to do the same for Mordecai. They're going to write out all of Mordecai's orders. They're going to make sure that they're translated into the script and language of every people group throughout Persia. And Mordecai's orders... And Mordecai's orders would be sent to the satraps, the governors, and nobles of those provinces, stretching from India to Cush. In other words, from one end of the kingdom to the other. And do you see what people group leads that list? It's the Jews. It's the Jews. And that is no accident, friends. By placing the Jews first in, a, in this list, in a legal document, 
Mordecai has elevated the status of the Jews throughout Persia, placing them on the same level as rulers of the provinces, giving them a privileged identity among the peoples. The Jews, who were once helpless targets of evil, are now a people empowered by the king's decree. And so written and sealed, these, decree, these dispatches are now sent off and delivered by mounted couriers riding fast horses that were specially bred for the king. It's, it's interesting, the Persian Empire was actually widely admired for its communication system and for its efficiency. A system that was very similar to the Pony Express that would be used in the American West almost 2,000 years later. The Persian communication system, or their courier system, um, featured stations along the way, along the main roads in every direction, a station for every day of the journey with a fresh horse and a fresh man at each station. And the historian Herodotus even uses this comment in his ancient writing about these people. He said, neither rain nor snow nor heat nor darkness will keep them from their task. Now, in verses 11 and 12, Mordecai, it's revealed what Mordecai wrote in the decree. Let's take a look at this. Verse 11 says, The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes is the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. So with this decree, you see that Mordecai gave the Jews permission to defend themselves against any aggressor who attacked them. See, under Haman's decree, attacking the Jews and killing them and plundering their possessions. That was permitted and even protected by the law. But any form of gathering in groups or assembling together by the Jews for self-defensive purposes would have been considered a criminal act. Do You see, this left the Jews alone and isolated. A, a particular Jewish person or a single family could be attacked by a group with no possibility of overcoming. It left them vulnerable. And to be sure, there were plenty of people scattered throughout the empire who, like Haman, hated the Jews and were eagerly anticipating an opportunity or a chance to kill them legally. But Mordecai's decree changed everything. Changed everything. Because assembling was now permitted. And the word for assembling means to muster an army. In other words, the, the decree was giving the Jews the right to gather in groups and defend themselves, even if it led to the death of the attacker. To be clear, let's be really clear here, the Jews were not allowed to be the aggressor. They could not initiate the violence. They could not go looking for a fight, but they were allowed to defend themselves. And by making this provision, Mordecai changed the status quo. 
which means on the 13th day of the 12th month, if anyone attacked the Jews, the Jews could now assemble as an army and defend themselves to the death, in effect, neutralizing Haman's decree, significantly limiting its actual threat against the Jews. Look at verse 13. It says, a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses raced out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. The 13th day, at the time that Mordecai wrote the decree and sent it out, the 13th day of the 12th month was still about eight and a half months away. But the couriers were sent racing through the kingdom, spurred on by the king's command, so that the Jews might be notified and allowed to get ready well in advance. And, and, the enemies of the Jews were being put on notice. In a way, the, more, the, the decree was saying, blood does not have to be shed this day. There doesn't have to be bloodshed. But if you attack the Jews, you do so now at your own risk. You do so now at your own risk. And in this fifth and final stage, the Jews celebrate in every province. They celebrate in every province. Look at verses 15 to 17. Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy and gladness and honor. In every province, in every city where the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. So by the time we reach verse 15, a little bit of time has passed, probably several days since the decrees had been sent out. Mordecai is settling into his new position He's now among the elite, those who are allowed a personal audience with the king. In fact, in this verse, verse 15, he's just left the king's presence. And you notice he has royal garments on now. Garments befitting his royal office. He wears garments of blue and white, the regal colors. And a robe of purple, fine linen, and a crown of gold. The city of Susa would have received the news first because all they had to do was walk outside and post the edict. And their quiet confusion over Haman's decree was replaced quickly with a joyous celebration. Music and dancing and singing and shouting. It was a time of, for laughter and food and festivity. The spontaneous eruption of joy signals not only this deep relief they feel no longer under the threat of death from Haman's decree, but it's also expressing their joy over Mordecai's promotion. Somebody is now an authority who will look out for them. And while the general population shared in this joy, for not everybody hated the Jews, 
The general population shared in the joy, but nowhere was it felt more strongly than amongst the Jews themselves because they were actually under the threat of death. And as it continued to, uh, it continued to spread, the decree was delivered and read throughout each province as the couriers traveled and the mood of the empire began to change. When Haman's decree was issued, remember there, the mood of the kingdom was mourning and fasting and weeping and wailing. But now at the issuing of Mordecai's decree, the mood of the kingdom is joy and gladness and feasting and celebration. And here's something for us to grab hold of as we uh, think about this passage for us. Friends, God's promises of his presence, his help, and his deliverance bring hope. God's promises of his presence, his help, and his deliverance bring hope. The Jews throughout Susa and the empire were living under gloom and fear. Haman's decree had brought nothing but despair and the promise of death. Anyone here under a weight of darkness and hopelessness that feels like it's going to swallow you up? I know I feel like that at times. Anyone here feel like joy and laughter have left you abandoned on the side of the road? If so, you need to know that Esther and Mordecai and about 15 million Jews in Persia carried that same burden from the, from the time of Haman's decree until the time of Mordecai's decree. But God was there and they were not alone. And God was working behind the scenes, providentially guiding all things towards the accomplishment of their rescue. And friends, God is still at work in our lives today. You might not see him. His activity is often disguised as natural circumstances and processes. But he is there and you are not alone. And his promises of his presence, his help, and his deliverance are meant to give you hope. Not an empty hope, not a disappointing hope, but a certain hope, a sure hope. And just as Esther and Mordecai continued to press on and believe that God would deliver his people, I want to encourage you to trust the promises of God and trust the God of the promises because in him you will find the hope and strength and refuge that you need until his deliverance arrives. The chapter closes with these words. It says, And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. The power of God, the working behind the scenes and often through natural processes, was plain for people to see for those who had eyes to see it. This whole turn of events led many of the Gentiles throughout the empire to recognize that a supernatural power was clearly on the side of the Jews. Too many coincidences occurred for that to just be chance. Clearly, a supernatural power was on the side of the Jews. And so many of them converted to Judaism, forsaking their pagan religions. And in this final twist of irony... Final twist of irony, Haman's efforts to exterminate the Jews ended up actually increasing their numbers because that's the way God works. 
Now to close this message this morning, I'd like to do something uh, a little bit different for you. I want to read for you Psalm 37. This psalm was written by King David, and he wrote it when the people of God were facing evildoers, just as the Jews in Persia faced the threat of death from the decree of Haman. And in this psalm, God calmly assures his people that he will deliver those who trust in him, and he will bring the evildoers to their end. And as I read this, I want to encourage you to try to listen to these words on two levels. At the first level, I want you to just hear these words as they fit into and kind of speak to the context of the story of Esther. But on another level, I'd like for you to listen to these words and try to hear them as God's whisper of hope given directly to you. Okay? So I'd encourage you to just close your eyes. We're not going to um, put it up on the screen. Just close your eyes and listen to these words. Psalm 37. Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause, like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when evil men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn away from wrath. Do not fret, for it only leads to evil. For evil men will, cut off, will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend the bow to bring down the poor and the needy, to slay those whose ways are upright. But their swords will pierce their own hearts and their bows will be broken. Better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked. For the power of the wicked will be broken. But the Lord upholds the righteous. The days of the blameless are known to the Lord and their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster, they will not wither. In days of famine, they will enjoy plenty. But the wicked will perish. The Lord's enemies will be like the beauty of the fields. They will vanish, vanish like smoke. Turn from evil and do good. Then you will dwell in the land forever. For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. They will be protected forever, but the offspring of the wicked will be cut off. 
The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous man utters wisdom and his tongue speaks what is just. The law of God is in his heart and his feet do not slip. The wicked lie in wait for the righteous, seeking their very lives. But the Lord will not leave them in their power or let them be condemned when brought to trial. So wait upon the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen a wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a green tree in its native soil, but he soon passed away and was no more. Though I looked for him, he could not be found. Consider the blameless. Observe the upright. There is a future for the man of peace, but all sinners will be destroyed. The future of the wicked will be cut off. The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Let's pray. And then the worship team is going to come and lead us in our final song. Heavenly Father, we want to Uh, just surrender ourselves before your word and before you, its author. God, I pray that your spirit would be free in every one of us to do the work that he wants to do, to use these scripture passages to mold our hearts so that we become more and more like Christ, less and less like the people around us. God, I pray that the words of this psalm would bring hope to those who are carrying heavy loads. I pray that they would find refuge in them and find rest. I pray that these, the words of this psalm would guide our steps. May we learn to do what it has asked us to do, to trust in you, to delight in you, in you, to be still before you, to refrain from anger, to turn from evil and do good. And may we learn to wait for you and keep your way. Lord, we look to you always for courage and hope and strength. Just as you gave it to Esther and Mordecai, I pray that you would give it to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.